the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is out sick. James Blind is engineering and producing today's program. We're glad to have you with us. Today we're going to share a conversation I actually had with Alan Hotchkiss and Lillian Uwaze on Thursday of last week. As you might recall, they were on uh, on deck to uh, uh, to have a live interview traffic, well, didn't allow that to happen. So we actually had that conversation last week. We'll share it with you today. They are both with Africa New Life. I'm looking forward to sharing uh, that conversation during this first hour and bleeding over a little bit into the next. And then we're going to share a conversation that I had with Congressman Ken Buck. He's the author of Drain the Swamp, How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think. We had that uh, broadcast in the first hour when he was with me um, last week, and we're going to share it in the five o'clock hour for those who missed it. Uh, today, so looking forward to uh, to sharing that. Well, Congress today returned from a two week break, facing a deadline to keep the government operating. The president's pressing harder for some legislative accomplishments as his first 100 days in office wind to a close. Now, by the way, it was the, during the time of the New Deal that that 100 days sort of got to be a thing. It's really sort of an arbitrary benchmark, but it does give a point at which one can stop and uh, look back and then look forward at. at uh, administration. But as Congress returns, there's a lot to do. This week is shaping up to be a collision of needs between the two, and time is quickly running out on both. Um, uh, passing funding is uh, is top of mind. It's uh, in order to avoid a government shutdown. It appears to be an easy task just weeks ago, but new stumbling blocks have arisen, as one would be wouldn't be surprised to learn in recent days, as the president has added new demands on items like the border wall and increasing military spending. Well, government funding ends on Friday. That allows only three full days of legislative activity after the House returns late Tuesday night, and the last-minute controversial requests from the administration are threatening to make that deal harder to reach. Well, at the same time, the president is pushing Congress to move quickly on another attempt to pass a repeal bill of the Affordable Care Act, even though House Republicans aren't unified on a path forward. Now, they have said that they're not going to bring it up for a vote until they're certain they have sufficient numbers, so I don't know what that means in this context. But to add more to Congress's plate, the president told the Associated Press last week that he intends to unveil his plan to overhaul the tax code, another priority for Republicans, but a gesture that caught Republican congressional leaders by surprise. That shouldn't happen when you have uh, one party dominant in both the House and the Senate and in the White House. Well, all of this is making for a very busy, uh, busy week. So funding government is top of mind. Health care is on the uh, ledger. Tax reform, 2018 appropriations, the debt ceiling. And uh, that seems like probably enough. Rachel Bovard writes this about uh, where we stand today. She points out that when Congress returns, uh, it faces potential government shutdown. How will Congress stave this off? Most likely with an omnibus spending bill. We've seen this happen before. When Congress returned from its uh, recess, it faces the the potential government shutdown, and lawmakers will have only a few days to prevent that from happening. Members have uh, known about this deadline since December when they passed the last stopgap funding bill. And the fact that they've, again, let negotiations wait until the last possible moment shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. They're simply following a disappointing decades-long pattern, and we've allowed them to do that. But with Republicans holding control of all branches of government, another half-hearted attempt to negotiate any kind of spending limitation is a big letdown, especially after their uh, earnestly campaigned upon commitments to finally get control over government spending. Well, how will Congress stave off a shutdown? Most likely with an omnibus spending bill, an amalgamation of 11-year-long spending bills crammed into one legislative behemoth. There are 12 annual spending bills. That's always the case. And the House already passed the fiscal year 2017 defense spending bill earlier this year. And while agencies will cheer not having to deal with what's called a continuing resolution, that's a straight extension of last year's funding levels that allow no room for shifting spending priorities, either up or down. An omnibus is certainly nothing to be proud of. 
Spending bills are ideally considered one at a time so that lawmakers can debate funding levels, program effectiveness, and changes in national priorities. But they have not done that for quite some time. Well, during that kind of a debate, Congress is able to weigh the merits of a program in light of larger fiscal picture. For example, what reforms should be made to Medicaid to prevent further improper payments? More than $142 billion worth have been uh, made since 2009. Or when the country is $20 trillion in debt, should the Commerce Department really be spending $1.7 million on the National Comedy Center that will resurrect dead comedians as holograms? Wow. This is perfectly, uh, is precisely rather the type of debate that should be happening, but it will not be happening. By ignoring the opportunity to use this spending deadline to enact genuine reforms, Republicans are ignoring the voters who ask them to manage the country's spending. Worse still, they look to be ignoring the funding priorities of their own president. President Trump has asked Congress to fund a border wall, boost spending on ongoing defense operations, and to assist the Justice Department in enforcing uh, federal immigration laws against sanctuary cities. Republican leaders, however, have given mixed signals regarding their commitment to address these requests, which, by the way, reflect some of the key campaign promises that got him elected. Well, this political tone deafness isn't going to uh, going unnoticed by the electorate. And these next few days will certainly tell a much broader tale and we'll try to cover it as it unfolds. Meanwhile, there is a struggle uh, as the members of Congress are uh, repealing and replacing Obamacare. There's a struggle uh, that will um, decrease fast rising and exorbitant premiums as well as increase consumer choice. As all of that goes on, Americans are facing an increasing shortage of primary care physicians. And the problem is only expected to get worse. We've talked about it here before. Now imagine a world where everybody has to travel hours to find a doctor who's able to provide treatment and life uh, life-saving medicine. Imagine having a, a child fall ill, but the nearest pediatrician uh, being made uh, miles away. Well, that's a real life scenario. We may all have coverage, but whether or not we have access to the health care we need is a whole nother issue. Now, this shortage is already affecting communities nationwide. Many have already started to lack much needed medical services, and this pressure is most deeply felt in rural communities. The coming crisis has multiple causes, one being the aging pool of physicians. As older physicians begin to retire over the next decade, the number of physicians will drop. By 2030, there will be a shortage of as many as 104 1,900 physicians. Part of this problem stems from the fact that medical residency programs, a training requirement that's a prerequisite for becoming a board-certified physician, are not churning out new doctors at a sufficient rate. The physician shortage problem is so bad that some states, like Missouri, they've actually decided to bypass the residency requirement in order to attract medical graduates who are not able to to, uh, participate in residency training programs. Under the supervision of a fully licensed physician, these graduates... Uh, are to be given the, the, uh, some f- uh, form of provisional license, which would allow them to practice medicine for a limited time without residency, and that would sort of substitute as residency, one presumes. Well, many of these medical graduates are highly trained. They're educated. They've passed the United States medical licensing exams, and this would... Um, Uh, provide physicians where they are lacking. Well, given that nurse practitioners and physician assistants um, are already given a significant amount of autonomy, allowing these graduates to practice in some capacity can only help curb the rising physician shortage. But that, of course, is not something that's currently being considered by members of Congress. Well, today marked the first time that uh, former President Obama uh, made a public uh, appearance. He says that immigration opponents aren't automatically racist, as he uh, told supporters Monday that he shouldn't uh, they shouldn't immediately assume that someone who wants stricter enforcement of immigration laws is automatically racist. And he called for a new understanding and engagement in American political life. Returning to the public stage for the first time since leaving office, he said his chief post presidency goal will be to try to spark a resurgence of interest in politics and to push for an army of com- of uh, community organizers and leaders among young people. Speaking to students at the University of Chicago, his hometown. Uh, where he used to teach constitutional law, he also said he's lucky his younger life wasn't saturated by today's social media, saying that his political rise might have been derailed if photos of, well, his activities had been made uh, public. And he said, in fact, that he probably would not have been uh, elected president if that were the case. Well, today the president is meeting with, uh, is holding rather, a rather unusual 
uh, meeting of the U.N. Security Council. He's hosting members uh, at the White House, a highly unusual meeting made even more startling because of his harsh criticism of the international institution during the campaign and since taking office. office rather. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley is serving this month as the president of the U.N. Security Council, a role that rotates each month among the five permanent members, the U.S., Great Britain, France, China, and Russia. There are 15 members of the group, but the others right now, including Egypt, Japan, Senegal, Bolivia, Ethiopia, Italy, Kazakhstan, Sweden, Ukraine, and Uruguay are non-voting members. Well, Haley will be attending before the group returns to New York for scheduled Security Council meetings on Tuesday. The president's budget outline proposed deep cuts to the U.S. contribution to the U.N., which could dramatically impair its peacekeeping functions around the world unless others step up and pay putting in quotes, their fair share. Other high-profile U.N. functions include refugee relief, vetting of refugee visa applications to the U.S., the World Health Organization, UNICEF, and the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna, the weapons inspectors who monitor Iran's compliance with the nuclear deal. Diplomatic sources uh, told NBC News the ambassadors are expecting to have coffee at Blair House, also known as the president's guest house with members of Congress, Uh, which they did this morning, and then go to the White House to meet with the president and have lunch, which I'm guessing they've already done by now. This isn't the only unusual meeting or conversation the president is having today. And when we come back from the break, we'll talk about the fact that the president had a conversation with China and Japan over North Korea and has invited the full U.S. Senate uh, to sit down and talk about that very thing. So we'll get into that when we return and much more. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Alan Hotchkiss. He's the executive director of Africa New Life. And he brought with him Lillian Uwaze. She's a program intern from Rwanda. We're going to talk about some of the many programs that Africa New Life is engaged in. It's been amazing to see from their early days where the organization stands today and the programs that are reaching uh, Rwanda in ways that are Really magnificent. They'll be joining us for three segments, beginning with the next. And in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Congressman Ken Buck. He's the author of Drain the Swamp, How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think. Some of the corruption I found utterly shocking. I worked in a congressional office and some of this was uh, utterly shocking to me. And he names names. I asked him in our conversation uh, that has been pre-recorded whether or not there was a risk uh, to him uh, by being so specific and explicit in um, exposing the the swamp, if you will, the corruption that's worse than most uh, Americans, most taxpayers think. And he said he's not there to win a popularity contest. Well, we'll find out whether or not he will when he uh, that conversation is aired uh, later in the five o'clock hour. Well, the entire U.S. Senate has been invited to the White House for a briefing on Wednesday on the North Korea situation with escalating tensions over the country's missile tests and bellicose rhetoric. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer confirmed the upcoming briefing. For all 100 senators on Monday, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Joseph Dunford, and Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats plan to provide the update to lawmakers. It's a rare uh, occasion for the entire Senate to be invited for such a briefing. Spicer clarified that while the event will take place on the White House campus, it's technically a Senate briefing, and Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, is the one who convened it. Well, the briefing first reported by Reuters was confirmed by the president earlier when he spoke to leaders from both China and Japan. The president spoke by phone to the Chinese President Xi Jinping and Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Xi told the president uh, that China strongly opposed North Korea's nuclear weapons program and hoped all parties will exercise restraint and avoid aggravating the situation, according to the Chinese broadcaster CCTV. Uh, President Trump, he hopes China could increase pressure on its isolated ally instead of using military options or trying to overthrow Kim Jong-un's regime. President Trump and Abe agreed to urge North Korea to refrain from provocative actions. Good luck there. Meanwhile, U.S. commercial satellite images indicate increased activity around North Korea's nuclear test site, while Kim has said that the country's preparation for an ICBM launch is in its final stage. South Korea Defense Ministry said that uh, North Korea, the North rather appears ready to conduct such strategic provocations at any time. South Korean Acting Prime Minister Hwang Kyo-an 
has instructed his military to strengthen its immediate response posture in case North Korea does something significant on the 25th of April. This is the anniversary of its military. North Korea often marks significant dates by displaying military capability. Today, the president also had lunch with ambassadors of countries and the U.N. Security Council, as I mentioned a moment ago, ahead of the meeting. He called for big reforms at the U.N., criticizing its handling of recent events in Syria, North Korea, but said it has tremendous potential. You just don't see the United Nations like solving conflicts. I think that's going to start happening now, the president said. And that, by the way, was a quote. Meanwhile, the White House has announced that the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control has imposed sanctions on Syria. That's in response to the chemical attacks earlier this month, specifically freezing the assets of some 271 members of the Assad regime suspected of supporting the attack. Uh, more news on that, I'm certain, is, uh, is forthcoming. Well, a sea of several thousand scientists and their supporters flooded downtown Portland's Waterfront Park on Saturday afternoon for the city's March for Science, one of roughly 500 uh, taking place around the world in conjunction with Earth Day. Organizers uh, said that they expected a a large turnout of about 10,000 people. Uh, Science is a form of exploration, said Larry Stark, a machinist with the University of uh, Washington, He said it's a form of exploration that we all use for every facet of our lives. Many brought signs, a large portion of which were political, with phrases like make America smart again and climate change is real. Well, nobody doubts that climate change is real. The question is, what causes it and how significant a role does uh, man's activity uh, play? Nonetheless, although the organizers trumpeted the event's nonpartisan platform, I'm not sure anybody believed that from the outset. Uh, Participants in Portland were quick to take aim at President Trump. His proposing uh, funding uh, cuts to scientific research agencies like the EPA, which stands to lose 31 percent of its funding if his proposed budget is passed. Local congressional leaders were also on hand for this nonpartisan, nonpolitical event, blasting the president's take on the government uh, funded research. Portland's March for Science uh, started at about 10 a.m. and uh, there were an hour worth of speeches. The crowd took to the streets at 11, marched for about an hour, dissipated, and the event was um, was over. I thought it was rather interesting at the uh, national event, uh, the March for Science ironically included a transgender man as a speaker, which according to actual science is a woman. So I'm not sure how they uh, reconcile that, but that's the status of science today. I appreciated what Joe Bastardi had to say about this in his recent column, The March for What? He writes, The March for Science, uh, uh, no one in their right mind would uh, say that they are against it, but because of its name, first of all, you are standing against the right of people to march for whatever cause they wish. Second, you would por- be portrayed as, a, as someone who is against science, he says. I am for science, skipping down a paragraph. Just who does not believe in science? It's a straw man the marchers are marching against. What is questionable is the way science is being portrayed and used. Here's an example. You've seen this um, kajillion times. Now here's another one. Uh, This shows uh, no apparent linkage between CO2 and temperature in a time scale that goes back millions of years. So as someone who is acquainted with scientific method, I'm instantly skeptical of the idea that after all this time, there is now a linkage. That does not mean there can't be. And I'm open to that argument and understand it. But as I uh, ask uh, in my last blog, how much linkage is there? What am I uh, trying to figure out is... Why there is a march when many of the people in that march have no tolerance for the question of their position. While I think it's noble to be inclusive and diverse, are there any skeptics included as speakers? Is there diversity of thought? Of course not. Because in spite of what you see in the graphs um, uh, that are often presented... um, They ignore the obvious. The planet has always had temperature swings larger than this and independent of CO2 that should make any person searching for truth uh, for truth skeptical as to how much CO2 contributes. Questioning of dogma need not apply. That sounds more like religion than science. Being for science means being for discussion. So who is anti-science here? A classic case of blame your opposition for what you actually are doing. It's not the skeptic side shutting down debate. One must be very careful when questioning the motives of academia. There seems to be two opposing forces today in society in general. People who seek to earn their keep and people who believe they are owed their keep. There is no question that without research, much uh, much of it done in our schools, but also government and the private sector, we would not be where we are today. But guess what fuels the economic engine that allows people to grant money for research? 
I have no I have to question the motivation. For instance, if man-made global warming is such a done deal, why are we researching it anymore? Actual settled science, freezing and boiling points of water, gravity, the sun is darn hot and so on is not being researched. So apparently, AGW is not settled science and for good reason. If it is true this is all man-made, it's the first time established by science in recorded history. Another reason for being skeptical. But the statement by the former EPA director that actions have shut down a lot of businesses in this country and where uh, where brakes on American economic engine really say uh, says a lot about um, uh, what may be behind this preventing only 0.1 Celsius. You can even measure that with uh, certainty over 30 years was not the main reason. Instead, it was being a good example for the rest of the world. When I heard that it was so absurd to me, I thought it was meant to to sabotage the EPA mission, but no one said boo about it. Finally, there seems to be a mass denial uh, that the progress of human and, of course, research has been huge in the fossil fuel era. The assumption that this would not continue makes no sense. In addition, a vibrant economy seems to be a moral and ethical uh, positive. As far as researchers worried about grants being cut, would you rather take 10 percent of 50, 15 percent of 10? Yes, it's a bit of an exaggeration, though it makes my point. The population curve and the increase in GDP and life expectancy says to me the pie is expanding and many new challenges uh, they need researching are going to continue to challenge people and science will have to meet the challenge. I will not be going to the March for Science, he writes. I'd rather doubt I would uh, be welcome and would have to go to uh, in disguise for fear of being torn limb from limb from the open, tolerant marchers. But as is uh, in all questions of science, which involve why, when I look at, uh, at the march, I am asking, why about that? No one, in, no one is anti-science, even if a, a group of people wish to try to convince you of that. Now, Bastardi is a chief forecaster with Weatherbell Analytics, a meteorological consulting firm and contributor to the Patriot Post on environmental issues. You can find his uh, uh, piece at PatriotPost.us. Again, the march for uh, what, Joe Bastardi? Uh, Coming up, we're going to talk with Alan Hotchkiss. He's the executive director of Africa New Life. He's also uh, working with Lillian Uwaza, who's a program intern. We're going to talk about the work of Africa New Life in just a few moments. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Now, I know some of you have anticipated the conversation you're just about to hear because Alan Hotchkiss, who is the executive director here in the U.S., and Lillian Uwaze, who's a program intern with Africa New Life, uh, made their way into the studio on Friday. Or excuse me, that was on Thursday. Um, but because of traffic, we're a little bit late. So we recorded the conversation for you to enjoy today. So I am delighted to introduce Alan Hotchkiss, who is the executive director here in the U.S. of Africa New Life, and Lillian Uwaze, who is a program intern. And it's a delight to have you both in here. As I mentioned to our listeners uh, earlier, uh, when we do the Radiothon, we focus on one area. And this time around, we focused on your work in Rubavu. And as I studied and prepared for that Radiothon, I was so impressed by all of the things that Africa New Life is doing that we didn't have an opportunity to talk about. So I'm excited about the opportunity today to give a broader picture of all that uh, you all are doing. So welcome and thank you so much for coming. Great to be here. Thank you. <laughs> now, let me ask you, um, Lillian, you are a, a program intern. Tell us a little bit about your background and what you do at Africa New Life. Um. um... I was a sponsored child before when I was uh, in high school, and then African New Life sponsored me. And now I'm here in the United States uh, going to school at Normal University, mm-hmm. doing Master's in Global Development and Justice uh, while doing internship with African New Life. Wonderful. What are your plans once you finished your schooling? Uh I'm not sure right now because this program that I'm doing is really a big thing. I It just has many approaches, mm-hmm. so uh, I'll have to see. But now I'm really uh, so much interested in justice yes. issues around the world and also helping poor people who are not able to advocate for yes. themselves yes. yeah 
Well, I'm so delighted that you're here. And Alan, I think this just really highlights the importance of the sponsorship uh, program, which is a part of Africa New Life. In fact, that's how Africa New Life began. Maybe we can start by talking a little bit about those early days and how sponsoring children was a, the real focus of the founder and it continues to be a major focus of Africa New Life. Absolutely. You know, the ministry started, uh, really, it started right here in a lot of ways in Portland in 2001 when Pastor Charles Mugisha ended up coming to Multnomah. God opened the door for him to come here and, and uh, come to school at Multnomah. Uh, prior to that, he had been a refugee in Uganda uh, because of the genocide and all that had happened you know, with that activity between 1959 and 1994. He'd never been able to live in his home country of mm-hmm. Rwanda. And uh, in 1995, after the, the culmination of the genocide that killed a million people, uh, or over that really in about 90 days, uh, Pastor Charles, again, he's a refugee in Uganda. His parents, he'd been born there. His dad had been living there with his mom for four, for 35 years. And so when it became safe to go back to Rwanda, his dad said, I'm going to go and uh, I'm going to go back home. You know, I've been waiting, said to his wife all this time. And she said, I'll see you later. Hmm. I don't want to go there, you know. Um, and so dad left. I mean, why, why would he, she says, why would I want to go there? Our family's dead. Everybody's gone and been killed. And it's a disaster. Why would I leave our safe life here in Uganda, even though it's hard as refugees to go there, but he left. And so then uh, ultimately six months later, Charles came home from a trip he'd taken to the UK. He was about 27 years old. He was a pastor. He was a preaching pastor and found mom. And, and, you know, at that time that was before cell phones and all that kind of stuff. So uh, she, he said, you know, as the oldest son, she, he said, I need, we need to go find dad, make sure he's okay. So they went to Rwanda in about, in early 95. And uh, at that point, there were literally, this is in that time, a million people had died in 90 days. And then in the next year, 5 million people either fled the country or came back into the country. And there was only a 7 million people population. So you're talking about absolute chaos. So they're literally on the streets seven months after the genocide, they were still lined with bodies, corpses. That hadn't been buried, and that was Charles's introduction to his home country, and and thousands and thousands, uh, tens of thousands of orphan children, and uh, it moved him uh, to the point that he went back to his ministry that he was involved in in Uganda and said to his partner, you know, I have to go to Rwanda, and ultimately, long story short, God led him before he left for Rwanda to come to the U.S., go to school at Multnomah University, and in that process, he began to tell his story, a vision of helping children one at a time. Uh, through sponsorship, and a whole bunch of us heard the story and followed him there. And so now, at that time, there was 29 children initially uh, that were sponsored today. I think there's 80, almost 8,300 uh, that are sponsored by individuals, and about 3,000 of those are sponsored right here in Portland. So 3,000 families, probably some who are listening, mm-hmm. you know, sponsored children. And, and so that began in 2001. Lillian, you were sponsored in 2005, Five. right? Yeah. Yeah. So you got through sixth grade, but yeah. then after that, what happened? Um, after that, I didn't have money to go to school, and my aunt that I lived with, she was not able to support me or help me go back to school, and I had to stay home and just do housework and other stuff, but Really, I loved school, and I really wanted to go back to school. And one time I heard about African New Life, and I decided to go there by myself and ask them to help me. And from that way, that's how I came to know about African New Life and how they decided to register me, and I waited for a sponsor and for some few months I was able to get the sponsor and then the next year I went back to school. Yeah. Could you have imagined then that you would ultimately end up in the United States going to the university? Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, just my dream was like I at least I wanted to finish high school at least because I knew that that was a big thing for me, just being being at home with uh, just primary level diploma was not helping. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, my dreams were like, I need to finish high school at least 
but you know, I always tell people that God is not always done with me. He has big plans for me, and that's probably why I'm here. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, this is something that it's really important. I think, first of all, Lillian, what if you hadn't been sponsored? Let's say you you, you didn't get that chance. Uh, to be sponsored, you, you finished sixth grade and that was it. What do you think, what kind of things could you do? Where, where, where would you be right now? Oh, my gosh. That's, that's a big question. But, I mean, life will, could be really harder than than anything else anyone could think of because I can see many people who never went to school um, are just poor and they get married, especially like in Rwandan culture. You just don't do anything. You don't have value. You don't have anything with you. You just go home and just do nothing and give birth to those children. You're poor and the children are going to be poorer because like the whole generation of you 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 don't support yourself you can't help yourself so that's the thing and that's where i i can't see myself if i wasn't able to go to school yeah 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 i mean it's not like here being poor there Hmm. is not like being poor here yes when you're talking about poverty you're talking about you know maximum maybe making a dollar to a day and uh, probably working as a maid, maybe. And that puts you in a vulnerable, especially as a woman, puts you in a vulnerable position. Mm-hmm. And so you talk about getting married. Kids get married oftentimes at 12, 13 years old mm-hmm. because that's their option. But then they're still vulnerable. And what you said about not having value is, is significant. So w- when you talk about sponsorship, helping a child go to school, mm-hmm. uh, it, it puts them in a position to be powerful. Really, right. to grow and uh, and have an opportunity to, to have a life, you yeah. know, and to provide for themselves. As I sit across the table and I look at you, Lillian, you're a beautiful, bright young woman, and God has provided for you. You're here studying international studies and justice. You're going to be a world changer. And that's exciting to me to consider that a child is identified in need and somebody here says, hey, or somebody uh, around the world says, I want to sponsor that child. And that's one of the major emphasis of Africa New Life. Now, we need to take a break, but we'll continue our conversation. We're talking about the many programs that are part of the ministry of Africa New Life. Education is important, but in addition to the academics and the emphasis on making sure a child is able to provide for himself in the future or herself in the future, there's also a real emphasis on spiritual growth and development as well. Quick break. We'll be back again. Alan Hotchkiss and Lillian Uwaze with me in studio. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. With me in studio, Alan Hotchkiss and Lillian Uwaze. Alan is the executive director here in the U.S. of Africa New Life, and Lillian is a program intern. She's studying at Multnomah University. We were talking about your K-12 through education, and you were mentioning during the break, Alan, that getting a, a student through high school is one of the major goals. You also have a ministry that reaches out to vulnerable children who perhaps are not in families but, uh, but need the kind of help to get them on their feet as well. We do. We call that our Dream Kids program. It's right in Kigali, and uh, and in Kigali is a it's a large city. It's it's a million and a half people, and so there's that dynamic of of a city, just like anywhere else, just like here. And uh, in the midst of that, you have tremendous need. You know, have kids that are that are, their parents are like Lillian's aunt, who didn't have any education, and so they make less than a dollar a day. So you're in the middle of a cosmopolitan city, and uh, and yet you're in that situation. And uh, so that creates dysfunction, just like it does here. And so the kids that are in the Dream Kids program are kids that are not actually ready to be sponsored yet. They're, they're, they're in families that are dysfunctional. It could be because of alcoholism, it could be because of drug abuse, abandonment. But they're in a place where to sponsor a child, um, if, if I said to you, hey, I'm going to give you a, a sponsored child like Lillian, and you picked up the card off of a table and chose that child, if I called you in three weeks and said, Hey, I'm sorry, we lost the child. Mm-hmm. That doesn't go very well. So these are kids that their families are not stable enough yet to be sponsored. So what we do is, uh, and they're not in school. So what we do is initially we bring them to our campus at the Dream Center, is what we call it, in Kigali. 
and uh, and they come in and we get them to just begin to come for three months. They just come to the campus just to get used to actually having to be somewhere, you know. So they come to the campus and they eat lunch and they uh, begin to learn English. We share Christ with them at that point. Um, they have to. We make sure that they wash their clothes every night. They have to clean their shoes before they come. So they just get in the habit of, yes. you know, how can I, you know, being a regular kid. And then after three months, the next school year starts and we put them in school. Then they go to school at seven in the morning. Then they come after school. School ends at about one. They come and have lunch. We tutor them. And so they spend the entire day instead of on the street or just roaming around, they spend it with us. And uh, what we're finding is that in that period of time, we also work with the families to help stabilize the families. So within about nine months, they're really stable and ready for sponsorship. So then they come up for sponsorship. And in fact, I think some of those kids, if you go to our website, afternoonlife.org, are there. They're under DRM. You can sponsor those kids. So Now, in uh, we've been talking primarily about Kigali, but you also have in Koyanza, and I correct me if I'm mispronouncing that, the New Life Christian Academy. Tell us about that. You know, New Life Christian Academy, Kayonza is a community that's about an hour and a half uh, east of Kigali, and uh, that's actually where Pastor Charles came when he first came to Rwanda. In, in the first place, that's where his, his mom and dad still live today. And uh, what he saw there was this need for education. In that location, there really wasn't a school even really much at all available at that time in that situation. So um, they bought a little little plot of land and started a nursery school. And, 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 you know, it's interesting because at that time, when they made that decision to buy that land, they had to go to the government and say, hey, we want to buy land to start a Christian school. And the government said to them, you know, uh, we have, a, we have an, a, an Islam community here and a, a Muslim community also wants to start a school. And, and we don't think we want to have an, a Muslim community in, 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 our, uh, in our city, a Muslim school and a Christian school. So what we're going to do here is we're going to see who raises the money and builds the school first. And whoever builds the school oh first gets the school. And so, uh, you know, we were just a little, t- it was just a little tiny organization with, you know, nothing really. So we began to pray. And, you know, um, God used uh, an attorney right here in Portland who uh, got to know Charles through, I think, immigration, working with him on immigration papers and all of that. And, and this attorney rode a bike. Uh, across America and raised the money to build the first school building uh, that is that is now a school of 1,500 kids. And that school is actually, in the last six years, has been in the top 10 scoring schools on the national exams every year for the last six years in the 6th, ninth, and 12th grades. And there's 1,500 kids that are there. So it's amazing to see what God has done and uh, to see all this happen. I know that uh, there are also university scholarships. Uh, You have a helping hand fund uh, to come alongside and help um, students there as well. Now, you mentioned uh, with the youngsters who aren't associated with a family um, that you help to to build the family. Tell us a little bit about your emphasis on uh, creating a stable home for vulnerable women in Rwanda and some of your efforts to reach into the the households and, and with individuals who are struggling, who perhaps school isn't the solution. Yeah, you know, let's say, Lillian, you're here. I mean, if, if Lillian hadn't gotten an education, then her fate would have been just like the gals that we work with. Probably she would have been a maid uh, in a home, potentially gotten married, something like that. But, but she would be vulnerable. And especially if you're a maid, there's no minimum wage in Rwanda. So what you're looking at is, is that oftentimes uh, families will provide a place for their maid to live or their, 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 their nanny to live. And paying maybe fifteen dollars a month. Well, that's that sounds good. But uh, then you think about that. Let's say the man in that household isn't a nice guy, mm-hmm. and he decides to take advantage or put pressure on that young girl or maybe teenage girl, you know, to be involved with them in a way that isn't appropriate. What is she going to do ultimately? Mm-hmm. And so uh, we have a program that is, it provides vocational training for gals that are like this that are between about 18 and 30. And uh, what we find, uh, it's interesting, we had a gal that went and did an abuse seminar for them. She'd been abused here in America and and had come out of that. And so we had her come and share that story 
with uh, one of our classes there of about of about uh, 90 women. You know, and at the end she said, you know, if this is a story that you've experienced, if you've had uh, someone, a man, treat you like this, uh, or maybe you're in that situation now, I'd love for you to come forward and we'd love to counsel you and pray with you. And, and about 35% mm. of the women in the class came forward uh, and they'd been abused at some point. And, 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 and about 20% of them were in the process, they were in abuse at that time, literally. And so what this program does is it provides these women who are vulnerable with a skill. First of all, uh, uh, in hairdressing, because that's a staple. Man, everybody needs their haircut, ultimately, or in tailoring. And uh, that gives them a skill. You know, here, man, when we get a hole in our jeans, we just throw them out, right? Uh, But in Rwanda, oftentimes somebody will keep a shirt or a dress, you know, or a pair of pants for 20 years. And what they do is they just go next door to the gal who has a sewing machine and is good, and she sews it up. So this tailoring program gives these ladies skills that they can use right in their home to earn a living or to move out of that home and to get in a better situation. Yeah. So that's really what it's for. In addition to that, uh, these gals haven't had education, ultimately. And so oftentimes when they graduate, they make their own, their own graduation gowns. It's the first time in their lives they've ever graduated from anything. And in the midst of that, we teach them that they're valuable. Yes. That they belong to God and he matters and they matter to him. And it's amazing what happens when somebody begins to understand that for the first time and has a skill. They become powerful. Absolutely. I know that one of the major emphasis of Africa New Life is to share the gospel uh, in Rwanda. Talk a little bit about New Life Bible Church and the Africa College of Theology. Man, you know, in the end, our mission statement is that we exist to transform lives and communities by preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and acting in compassion in his name. So everything we do is saturated with the gospel. In each community where we have a sponsorship program, we plant a church. And, um, and then Africa College of Theology, less than 1% of pastors in Rwanda have any kind of theological education. In fact, oftentimes they may have a third grade or fourth grade education. They may be a pastor because they can read the Bible, mm-hmm. because they have reading skills. So you think about what that means in terms of how they might interpret the Bible, or they may see something on television, you know, uh, and use that as an example. So Africa College of Theology, the intent of the school is really to help pastors begin to get a better grip on the scripture so they can be effective. Uh, one of the things that is true from the genocide is that almost every adult over the age of 25 in Rwanda has some form of post-traumatic stress mm. syndrome. Now, we know how that affects veterans I know on your show, you've talked about that here. Uh, It's a significant thing that requires a lot of help from psychiatrists and counselors, sometimes medication. In Rwanda, there are there are there are, you know, very few professional counselors and somebody makes a dollar a day can't afford a counselor. So where do they go? They go to their pastor. Well, their pastor needs to have some skills beyond even just what they might get from learning the Bible. They need to understand how to counsel somebody, how to help somebody, how to help them if they've developed, you know, an addiction because they're trying to medicate that problem. So African College of Theology really prepares a pastor holistically to serve his people or her people because they're the only person in the community to do that. Yeah. How how has your faith developed as a consequence of being associated with and sponsored by Africa New Life? Um, before, uh, coming to African New Life, uh, my aunt was really strong Christian and then I was young by then, but being in African New Life, uh, having center days where every child who is sponsored come together and hear the gospel and just being charged, uh, every Sunday really helped me through my faith and walking mm-hmm. with God, right? And, yeah, just being there with pastors and everyone who works with sponsorship is a Christian, and whenever you feel like you, you're just down, you go and talk to someone, it really it 
encouraged me through that way. And yeah, till now. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're at Multnomah University. That's just a, such a wonderful mm-hmm. thing. Now we're going to take a break, but uh, we'll return and continue our conversation with Alan Hotchkiss and Lillian Uwaze from Africa New Life. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Alan Hotchkiss, who is the U.S. Executive Director of Africa New Life, and Lillian Uwaze. She is a program intern at Africa New Life as well. Uh, I want to talk a little more about education, but before we get into that, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about uh, the Dream Medical Center, Community Nurses, and your Emergency Medical Fund. Uh, you know, we uh, when you look at what does it take, when you're talking about trying to transform a life, what, what is required? Well, education. Obviously, we've talked about the gospel and how central knowing Jesus and really understanding and being able to trust him deeply is. But then, you know, if, if, a, if a child is in school and maybe they, they are, have a chance to eat, like we've been able to provide meals on this mm-hmm. show. But if a child is sick, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, ultimately, if, if you don't feel good, if, if, you, if you've got a physical problem, man, you're not going to be able to do well in school. And so what we've done in our each community where we have sponsorship, we have a community nurse that we fund outside of sponsorship. This community nurse helps with runny noses, you know, checkups, all that kind of stuff. But, but really their primary role is this. Sponsored families, again, they're typically illiterate, the parents. If there's a parent, they're illiterate and they're intimidated. So if you're illiterate, think about trying to go to an emergency room. If, if, if you don't speak English. The second thing is that in Rwanda, here in America, when you go to the emergency room, the law says that you have to be treated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have our, there's all kinds of controversy about what that all looks like. But the bottom line is that's a beautiful, compassionate thing. In Rwanda, because there's not the money to do that, it's not true. So a poor family knows if they go to the doctor and they don't have the money then they can't get the help. So they just don't go. So that ends up causing people to wait a long time. So over the years, we saw a number of kids, uh, we, had, we had several kids die mm. because their parents didn't bring them to the hospital. So we put these nurses in the community so that now when a sponsored child's family realizes that child is in trouble and needs help, they take them to our nurse. And the nurse takes them personally to the hospital, goes up to the counter, fills out the paperwork, goes back with the doctor, makes sure they get the medication, makes sure they get everything they need to get better. And, uh, and that's all part of what we do in support of sponsored kids. That said, over the years, we've seen some really difficult situations, and especially in regard to post-operative care, and rehabilitation. So we had a boy named Fabrice, for instance, who uh, got a, a staph infection in his leg, and it was a pretty severe situation. And so we had a, an operation done on him in Kigali. His post-operative care consisted of no pain meds and one week of antibiotics. And they sent him home to a home that had a dirt floor. Mm. So six months later, we got a call, and they said, you know, Fabrice's infection has come back. And he's going to lose his leg. So, man, praise the Lord. There was a hospital in Boise, Idaho, St. Luke's, that took his case. A family there, one of our sponsored families, took this kid in. Fabrice had three surgeries in America, spent a year on antibiotics. We sent him home. His leg is saved, and he's fine. But there are many kids like Fabrice that we, we, can't, we can't keep doing that. It's not, you know, <laughs> it's not sustainable. So we said, man, we need to build our own hospital and we've done that now. It's called the Dream Medical Center. And you can actually look at it, dreammedicalcenter.com. It's online. Uh, and it's going to open in Kigali October 7th. It's a 40-bed hospital. It's going to emphasize women, especially women's care. We're going to offer, Georgine, the first epidurals in the nation wow. <laughs> of Rwanda at this hospital, for example. But it's going to open October 7th, and we'd love to have everybody that's listening Join us in Kigali. Oh, that's so. incredible. By the way, I would encourage you to check them out online, africanewlife.org, uh, to learn more about all of the things we're talking about, including the Dream Medical Center. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention is uh, that you uh, serve in communities of Kigali, Kayanza, um, let's see, Kageo. That's good. Uh, um, 
Bugasara. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, close enough. Um, and you also have uh, food programs, uh, the Keyhole Gardens, just a lot of ways of, of reaching into the community and uh, ministering to communities. Absolutely. Again, we, we exist to transform lives and communities. So ultimately, uh, with a life, they need education. They need to be healthy. That includes food. It includes medical. And, uh, and then, you know, you've got to have things that are sustainable. So if there's no water in the community, then you've got to bring water to the community. If, if, if agriculture is a problem, we, we hired an agronomist, you know, that comes in and supports the families and the, and the neighborhoods that they're in. Oh, beautiful. Well, I want to, uh, in the time that we have remaining, I want to talk a little bit to you, uh, Lillian, about your life um, since you were sponsored. You graduated from high school. Uh, you had a desire for higher education, but you worked for a year and a half before um, that became a reality for you. Talk a little bit about that uh, that journey from finishing high school, making your way for a period of time, and ultimately uh, receiving a scholarship. Yeah, like I told you, um, how if I manage to get a special, like in Rwanda, it's, it's so hard. So when I finished high school, I had my brothers to take care of, and I had myself as well. And I had to rent, I had to do everything. And probably the sponsorship was almost done when you finish high school. Mm -hmm. By that time, we were just done with African Your Life, probably. And so I, I was like, yeah, this is what I wanted. And now I have to go out and face the world. I have the courage. I, I know how to speak English. I, I know how to defend myself. Now I can go and look for a job. And that's how I ended up going and presented myself uh, at one of the supermarkets. And I was like, I'm ready to work. And I remember this guy, the, the, the owner, asking me, do you know English? And I'm like, yeah, I know English. <laughs> yeah, because pro- most of those big supermarkets, they would love people who speak English. And that was like the opportunity for me just to have, go- to have been able to go to school and in very good schools. And then that gave me the chance to be able to present myself well. Yeah, and just having the sponsor who encouraged me every time, you can do it. Mm-hmm. And even the African Your Life people encouraging you every time, you can do it. You have a future ahead of you. And that yes. really gave me uh, courage to go out. And then the payment that was being given to me per month was really not enough for my brothers and for myself. And Lillian, let me interject. You had to take care of them because they didn't get the chance to go to school, right? Right. So, yeah, like I said, they, my aunt wasn't able to help yes. me, and they were there. At least for me, I had a scholarship to go through African New Life, but for them, they wanted to go to school as well. So that's why I had, like, the focus and that eager to go out and help them as well because I've been helped. And especially like in Rwandan culture, when you are able to reach somewhere, you're the one to help your family. Mm-hmm. No one is going to do that. It's you and everyone is looking up to you. Everyone is like, yeah, Lillian is there and she's going to help us. So they were like, yeah, she's going to help us, and I had to do that as well. So, so you had one job, but it wasn't enough. Yeah, so I, um, because that job was paying me $100, I would say, yeah. And then... $100 a month. Yeah, a month. Mm-hmm. So I really think uh, I took this big challenge ahead of me, and I was like, I... I'm going to start a small business. So I used my my skills from high school and I was like, I, I love business and I can do it. I'm able to do something for myself. And from that point, 
I started a small business and it really worked well for me. And I was, like I said, I had the courage. I had the opportunity to meet those people yes. because I, I was able to present myself well and really worked well buying stuffs from our neighboring country, Uganda, and bring them to Rwanda and sell them to people who are not able to go there. Yeah, and it really worked well. So and you were a successful businesswoman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> On top of the full-time job, and you were able to do something pretty special for your aunt with that money, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, my brothers were really everywhere. We didn't have, like, specifically a house for mm-hmm. ourselves or anything. So I was, like, kind of tired of that, just being in people's homes. And I was like, I have to do something besides helping my brothers. We have to find a home for ourselves. So through that, I I decided to build a house. <laughs> it's not that fancy, but then... But it's a home. It's a home. Yes. Yeah, we have a home now. We go there. Every time I go back home, I I go there and I get where to sleep and they do get where to sleep. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's just it's really remarkable. We're just about out of time, but I think your story is just an example of the tremendous... Uh, benefit of having that sponsorship, getting an education, and again, uh, you're a, an entrepreneur. You're now you've uh, graduated from from college. It's really a remarkable example of what uh, African New Life can do in providing the opportunity for education, for a nurturing uh, a life of faith. And Lillian, I'm I'm so grateful that you're here uh, today to tell us a little bit of your story. I'd love to continue another another time because there's, there's just a whole lot more there. Sure. And Alan, I appreciate your leadership and giving us here in the Portland area an opportunity to learn about Africa New Life and to invite us to come alongside, whether that's traveling on one of the short-term mission trips, financially supporting a, a child um, like Lillian, whose life is essentially transformed and opportunities are just made available because of it. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation as we continue to just rejoice at what God is doing with Africa New Life and the uh, staff and volunteers here in the U.S. and the larger staff uh, in uh, in Rwanda. So thank you both for coming. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, and we look forward to coming back in. And, and I just want to invite everybody to come to Rwanda. It's uh, We'd love to have you. And that's so. not one of those, uh, you know, kind of pretend invitations. No. He's actually quite serious we, about that. We, we take about... About 400 Americans a year to Rwanda. And by the way, Rwanda is the ninth safest nation in the world. It's actually quite a bit safer, according to the people, than America. Yeah, and it's beautiful. Rwanda is is absolutely beautiful. Again, the website is africanewlife.org. Check it out. And you can also find them on Facebook at Africa New Life as well. All right, we've got to uh, take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. Final segment of the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. A quick rundown of what's uh, coming up the remainder of this week. Okay, let me see if I can get this straight. Uh, today, we were anticipating a conversation with Professor John E. Johnson. He's the author of Under an Open Heaven, A New Way of Life Revealed in John's Gospel. However, that was rescheduled for tomorrow. However, tomorrow we were expecting a conversation with David Limbaugh. He's the author of The True Jesus, Uncovering the Divinity of Christ in the Gospels. Well, he called and he's not able to be here tomorrow, so we've rescheduled him for March the 2nd. So tomorrow we're actually going to talk with Professor John E. Johnson. His book is titled Under an Open Heaven, A New Way of Life Revealed in John's Gospel. I think I've mentioned that I'm uh, attending Bible Study Fellowship this year. We've spent the whole year studying John's Gospel. So this has been very interesting uh, to me to read uh, Dr. Um, Johnson's book because he takes the various conversations. I believe there are 12 of them in the Gospel of John. uh, And it reveals uh, that it's not simply a conversation between two people generally involving Jesus and someone else. Uh, of lowly estate or the highest of uh, of stature, uh, but it reveals much more about the fact that 
um, a new way of life is revealed in those conversations and that we are under an open heaven, hence the title of the book. So we're looking forward to that conversation tomorrow. And then again, David Limbaugh, the true Jesus uncovering the divinity of Christ in the Gospels. Uh, we will talk with him on May the 2nd. Now, he um, was a skeptic, who, a skeptic rather, who came to faith in Christ. He's got a very interesting story of his own. Looking forward to that conversation in early May. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Fan Newton. The book is titled In Search of the King, Turning the Pursuits of Meaning into the Discovery of God. Uh, I think uh, sociologists have indicated that everyone is searching for meaning in life, to lead a life that is meaningful, to make a difference in the world. Well, Fan Newton suggests that in that search for meaning, uh, we can discover the, the king. That really is where that search leads us. Then on Thursday, we'll talk with David Brog. Uh, he's the author of Reclaiming Israel's History, Roots, Rights, and the Struggle for Peace. And all things um, standing as they do at this moment, that's the lineup for the remainder of this week. And then on Friday, we'll lighten up and we're looking forward to doing that as we do on every Friday. Well, my heart was broken when I read a story about a student uh, who um, was attending Wheaton College. Um, members there of the community are grieving over the death of Ethan Roser. He was a freshman at the school. It's in Illinois. He was accidentally killed after being struck by a hammer during the hammer throw event at a track and field competition on Saturday. Now, I competed in track and field all through high school and college, and I have to admit there have been times when I watch some of the events. Now, the hammer throw, uh, women were not involved in that, but the javelin and some other events, it was a little scary to me to see all that was going on. Uh, and I thought occasionally about the safety uh, that might be compromised. That's never been the case. But nonetheless, I can picture in my mind where all of this takes place on the field. Well, this Wheaton freshman um, uh, was accidentally killed. He was struck by the hammer during the hammer throw event. He was volunteering for that um, for the team on Saturday. Uh, Roser, who was a transfer student from Cincinnati, Ohio, he was 19. He was volunteering um, uh, when he was accidentally struck at about 4.15 Saturday afternoon. Wheaton College Public Safety and the city of Wheaton paramedics were at the scene immediately and transported him to uh, Good Samaritan Hospital nearby. Uh, the Wheaton College president, Philip Riken, said, We are deeply grieved, but because of our faith in Christ, not without hope. We ask people to pray for Ethan's family, his friends, and our campus community. Ethan's parents are missionaries, and he spent his early years in Africa. And while he was the youngest of four siblings, they said he was wise beyond his years. His family said he was a stellar athlete who overcame two difficult knee surgeries to continue playing soccer, including at Wheaton College. He was happy, uh, a happy person. He uh, turned to his faith during tough times. His older brother, Jonathan, expressed shock at his brother's death on Saturday I, I so um, relate to that shock of learning that as a young person, your sibling has died. Uh, you weren't present at the time. It, it seems unimaginable that it's possible. But this is what he said. He said, this afternoon, my youngest brother, Ethan, who was just 19 years old, was called home to be with our Lord. We are in shock and struggling to comprehend how we will live without him. Ethan lived a powerful life. He was studying at Wheaton in preparation to be a minister, he wrote, in a heartfelt uh, post on his Facebook page. And again, this is Ethan's older brother, Jonathan. He went on to write, Ethan would want you to know that although we face many setbacks and struggles in life, that there is great victory and triumphant glory in knowing and following Jesus. Death never has the final world word because Jesus overcame death and has prepared a place for us in heaven with the great ones. Although we so so in tears, we will reap in joy when we see him again in paradise. We love you all very much, and we truly are grateful for your prayers and encouragement, end quote. Well, on Saturday night, athletes from the competing school at the track meet joined Wheaton students for a prayer in Ethan's honor. Uh, it was reported by the local ABC News affiliate. Um, one student who attends Wheaton says, uh, I come here and it's really tough. Uh, this is where it happened, and it's crazy to see how life in a moment can go away. Another Wheaton student uh, remembered Roser as uh, as one who had a great sense of humor. Apparently, he wore duck shoes around the campus. On Sunday night, Wheaton College students, faculty, and staff gathered for a service at the Pierce Memorial Chapel to remember the 19-year-old student. A lot of people are grieving, said another Wheaton College student. Um, we're all kind of uh, feeling the atmosphere of his loss. But the professor, Dr. Jerry Rood, a Wheaton College uh, professor, noted the biggest thing about him, referring to Roser, is that he loved Jesus with intensity, and he wanted everyone to know how much they were loved by God and could be forgiven. And it struck me that 
this young man whose life ended in a moment in what uh, can only be described from our vantage point here on Earth as a, a freak accident that ended his life too soon. This young man lived with purpose and his life, even in those 19 years, made an impact on the people around him. He uh, and his brothers uh, expressed this as well, had placed his confidence in Christ um, and is with him even now uh, in his presence, as the scripture uh, describes. We need to be prepared to live a life of meaning and purpose every single day, because we know that every one of our lives will end unless we live until the day when Jesus returns. We need to be men and women of faith whose light shines as uh, Jesus calls us to. And I just wanted to encourage you to pray for this uh, family, for this campus, and to be reminded that life is short and sometimes brutish. But then we see Jesus. I want to thank uh, James Blinn for engineering today's program. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.